Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. All right, kids, we're going to get weird on this podcast. We're talking space and the connection to perspective and happiness and meditation with our guest, Loretta Hidalgo-Whitesides. That's coming up. First, some lightning quick, light speed quick orders of business. The first order of business is that we've got two new meditations up on the 10% Happier app. One of them is about stress, and it's from the excellent new addition to our app, relatively new addition to our app, Diana Winston. Uh, the other is on patience, and that's from 7A Selassie, who's a 10% happier app veteran and one of our most popular teachers. So check those out. The other item of business is that, and and if you've listened in the last couple of weeks, you know this, the voicemails that we had uh, been doing at the be- beginning of the show, they've now moved to the end of the show, so your voicemails are still here, but they're moved to a different spot. So that's coming up. Let's get straight to our guest, the aforementioned Loretta Hidalgo-Whitesides. She has quite a CV. She is an astrobiologist. She teaches leadership and development as well as mindfulness to the staff at Virgin Galactic. She will explain better than I can what Virgin Galactic is, uh, but it's pretty damn interesting. And she began meditating. She's been at it for a while. She started uh, in high school, and uh, she's still at it and, in fact, teaching it. And she's going to talk a lot about the importance of teaching meditation to the folks working on space exploration because they're going to be creating a whole new culture in space. And uh, that mission, we really want that for the future of our species to be successful. She talks a lot about uh, her own personal practice, the HOV lane effect, uh, the power of sitting in a in a group. Uh, she's, she talks a lot about what space exploration driven now by private companies like Virgin Galactic is likely – what it's likely to look like and feel like and uh, with all these people living and working in outer space in the, I think, not-too-distant future. And she talks about the concept of the new right stuff, the new right stuff. Remember the movie The Right Stuff about astronauts? Um, the new right stuff, that's uh, what the banner under which she teaches, which is a fascinating one, lots of lessons to be learned for all of us. She really believes that space and mindfulness have the power to expand our minds and help us grow as a species, which sounds a little grandiose, but I think you're going to find her arguments really compelling. I mentioned that she's got a a really interesting CV. Just a few other points on this. This is just a partial list of things she's done. She's researched plant life in the Canadian Arctic with NASA. Uh, She dove to the bottom of the ocean with the director of Titanic, James Cameron, for the IMAX film Aliens of the Deep. She's floated weightless hundreds of times as a flight director for the Zero Gravity Corporation. She's studied terraforming Mars with Dr. Chris McKay of NASA Ames. She uh, and her husband, uh, George Whitesides, who's the CEO of Virgin Galactic, plan to travel to space on Virgin Galactic's suborbital spaceship, Unity, sometime this year. She and her husband live uh, in the desert outside of Los Angeles uh, with their two kids. And I think you can tell from all of the foregoing that she's incredibly cool and interesting. And now you'll be able to hear her for yourself. One quick note before I let her take over. We recorded this a couple months ago, so there are a few outdated references. For example, she talks about the anniversary of Apollo 8 and the first picture of Earth from the moon. She says that it's coming up on Christmas Eve. That's a reference to the Christmas Eve that has just passed. So apologize for the dated reference, but I have nothing else to apologize for because this is an excellent episode. So here we go. Loretta Hidalgo-Whitesides. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Nice to Thanks meet you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, so so I always start with the same question, which is how, how did you get into meditation? <laughs> well, I'm really lucky. I went to um, a really – I now realized was a very progressive Catholic school in Northern California. And I remember in high school, you know, Sister Lillian would just take us to the chapel. We'd move the chairs out of the way and lay down on the carpet, and she would do guided meditations for us. And just thought that was normal. It's just what you do to connect with God or the cosmos. So she would infuse it with uh, some religious content? Um, I don't think so necessarily. It was more like a a body check-in, like let your arms relax. You're filling up with sand, like that kind of a thing. 
and we, you know, and we did retreats and, um, you know, we'd go to the Christian Brothers Retreat Center and we'd spend three days like connecting and talking with each other and about our fears and, you know, what's in the way of our relationships. And um, it was just a really sacred, extraordinary, connected, authentic space. And it wasn't until I got to college, I was like, oh, everybody else doesn't do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Where did you go to school? Stanford. So you stayed in Northern California. Yeah. But the Stanford's, I mean, I guess my, my parents met and married at Stanford Med School. Oh, in this, cool. Yes, they shared a cadaver. Uh, oh. True story. Romantic. I know, it's really romantic. They, they were, but my images of Stanford, I've never spent any time there, are pretty touchy-feely, hippie-ish because my parents were hippies and this was the late 60s. But I don't know how, sorry, my hip, parents were hippies and this was the late 60s. <laughs> Did I say that correctly? I don't know. Um, anyway, but, but, but when you were there, what, it was a much more hard-driving place. It wasn't so, you know, let's meditate and talk about our feelings. That's a good question. I mean, there was a little bit of it, you know, with freshman orientation, you'd have, you know, Everyone stands in a line. Like if your parents were divorced, you know, step forward. And you had that kind of um, thing. And we had some great classes. Like if um, your parents are divorced, step forward. If you've uh, endured a trauma in your life, step forward. Yeah, they're sort of showing how many people to have be suffered. vulnerable yes. and to share yeah. and to share it. Feel like connection with other people in the class and just get to know people on a deeper level. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's just a, it was just a in contrast to what where I had been. It just seemed like a very a secular environment and a very um, academic environment. I just didn't wasn't used to that. So you um, did you keep meditating when you left high school, or did it lapse? Um, it lapsed a bit because you know there wasn't. I didn't have a structure around me, and I and I only now in later life I appreciate like how much structure supports you. But when I got out of school, I went I went down to Houston to Johnson Space Center because that's where you go, obviously, if you <laughs> love space. Not- and, you you knew that by this point that you loved space. Oh, uh, since I was six years old, I've known that that was where I was going. Was you, she's pointing clear. out because you, oh, sorry, yeah, sorry. radio, sorry, a <laughs> uh, space. I was headed towards space, um, but so I went to Houston, Mecca, Johnson Space Center, NASA's Johnson Space Center, and um, uh, I had I got a repetitive strain injury from the old IBM's computers typing, and so I went to yoga there. Um, and the, the yoga instructor was phenomenal. She's still, still like 25 years later, like all the yoga instructors I, I have, was like, how do you know, they, how do they rank up to Raylan? <laughs> but, um, but she would do, you know, guided meditation at the end of every class. And it was just lovely. Like just and be in Shavasana and just like relax or, or she'd have a sit up and we, we'd had a mantra, which is like, uh, you know, breathing in, I calm my body, breathing out, I smile. Which I always thought was a nice, a beautiful way to, to sit. A lot of shavasana in my limited yoga experience is just you know lie there. There's no real instruction. Yeah. So I'm like thinking about lunch. It must, it must have been like a, a medita- you know a weekend meditation retreat or some extra thing I had done beyond just regular class. But yeah, just so that was helpful to have her, um, you know, give us some other tools. And then I came back to it in later life. Um, just on my own more recently and like taking on a practice. And, What's it look like, the practice now? Um, my The intention is to sit every morning when I wake up, um, try to get up a little before the kids so the house is a little How quiet. How old are the kids? Uh, six and eight. Okay, you're in it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so part of it was like, I need to learn, I need to get my act together to be able to be present with my kids and not just be like, get in the car! Uh, I, I hear you. Um, so I was like, okay. I had a moment like that this morning. It was like, yeah. Yeah, every morning. Yeah. Well, I don't have a car, and I don't have a six- or an eight-year-old, but I have a three-year-old, and <laughs> he just wasn't listening. And so I wanted to yell at him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't, actually. I walked over, got in his face, and said, I love you, but you have to do this thing. Wow. You wouldn't get in a stroller. That takes a lot. Takes and I said, well, I'll put you in nicely, or you can get in yourself. And I put him down, and he went over and got in. I was surprised it worked. Yeah, I I failed at that before. Yeah, totally. Like, oh, okay, I choose not. You're like, damn. I have no life. recourse. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so so you get you wanted to get your stuff together before you uh, rentals end. Yes, on. Yeah. And so so, that's the so you where did you when you were looking around for how to establish a practice? What what did you what resources did you go to? It's interesting. So I had um, when I turned forty, I. Um, was participating 
in like an experimental like circle group. Um, I called it my Jedi circle because I'm I'm obviously a Jedi. Um, <laughs> and it was like 17 of us, and we just made a commitment to meet once a month for a year, and then do a, like a whole weekend once a quarter, um, and just you know read books that are you know spiritual or, or whatever personal development books, um, and share our lives and what we're working on. And a lot of people in that were had more stronger a stronger practice. And so what I did to start, so I be, so that was one of the things I wanted to share was just like how much I've learned about how important it is to have a, a community, a circle, a structure to support you. Um, yeah, for a lot of people, that actually makes the whole difference. I mean, yeah. it makes a huge difference. The I keep cutting you off. I no, apologize. I do that a lot. But but I just wanted to amplify your point because it's an excellent point. And I haven't looked into sort of what allows people to establish an abiding practice. There are some people who don't really yeah. need a community, but there are some people for whom – having that kind of social support is just like the ball game. And the coolest part about it is when we would gather once a month, we'd often start one of the people in the group happened to be a meditation teacher. So we'd oh, like, hey, right. you're you're on, you, you know, to start our day, let's do five minutes. And we would we would sit in 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 community. And it was just incredible how much faster and how much deeper you can go just like with other people. Yeah, I call that the HOV lane effect. The HOV lane effect. I love it. Yeah, that's fantastic. So that was really cool. And the, what really helped is partnering with one of the people in my, in the circle who had a strong practice. And he just became my accountability buddy, just like you would at the oh, gym. Nice. And I would just text him every day, did 15 minutes, you know, did 20 minutes. Missed today. It was a late night or I got a deadline or ah. 15, and, 20 minutes is a good stretch. Yeah. It's a good number. Yeah. So that was what we were trying to hit. That was the goal. And so it just having somebody who cared, somebody who's listening, somebody to impress. Yeah. Yeah. Well, know. I mean, look, the, yeah. I mean, you say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but it's good to have somebody to impress. So, yeah, and somebody listening, somebody who cares. I mean, I think that's, well, I always reference 12 step, although I don't know anything about 12 step, but you know, having a sponsor, having somebody who's, who's, lo- who cares about your success. I'm not an expert in 12 step either, but I think a lot of what they've done is brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. We should do some podcasts on 12. So actually I have somebody, come, I think, coming on in the future who can talk about this. Anyway, back to you. So what difference did it make? Well, actually, before I ask about that, what kind, what flavor of meditation are you doing? I, I don't know. I do eyes closed. Uh, I don't know all the names. I, I, she, Raylan trained us this. I don't always, uh, sorry, holding. putting putting your thumb to your third finger. I don't always do that, but when I want to be like super diligent or extra pure, extra do like the, the <laughs> full on, if I need like real help, I'll do the, do you, the do right you, way. Do you f- focus on the feeling of your breath coming in and going out and then you get distracted or do you go to a mantra? I, I really – I was thinking – somebody asked me that recently, so I've been thinking about it. I really don't do either. Um, I, and I was like, oh, breath. I don't know, the breath. And then actually the, because I'm a, a astronaut, like I was thinking about this. I'm like, no, the breath. Like they were like, no, the breath is really important. So I started thinking about it. maybe the breath, maybe I should be meditating on the breath. Maybe that's the right. Maybe I should try that. What were that. you doing with your mind before that? If you weren't doing either of those things, just to just to clear, I actually consider meditation. So they say, you know, praying is talking to God, meditation is listening. So for me, the intention, uh, I always imagine being like a radio antenna. And so for me, the intention is to be still enough and quiet enough because I'm so hyperkinetic and jabbery that just be quiet enough, still enough to actually be able to listen to what the universe is telling me. And so it's almost like um, ideas come to me hmm. when I'm meditating. Or I'm like, oh, that's I need. Ah, I know. Actually, I had a great idea this morning, and then I, I was like, let's write it down, and I forgot. So like, <laughs> that happens to me all the time. Uh, which, but I'm convinced though that the if, if if it doesn't last for you through the end of the meditation, if you actually can't recall it at that point, it probably wasn't that great. And if it is really great, it will come back. Yeah. Having said that, I don't really know what I'm talking about. And I'm going to continue uh, in the spirit of not knowing what I'm talking about. I'm going to give you a piece of advice, which is – and you should take it in the spirit of like I'm not a meditation teacher. So this is just you know take it or leave it, probably leave it. But my sense is that actually your practice would benefit from having an object. Like in other words, uh, pick the breath. Just feeling if you pick one spot like your chest, your belly, or your nose – noticing what it feels like when the breath comes in and goes out or rise, fall of the belly, and then when you get distracted, start again. I actually think that will tune the antenna. Hmm. Fantastic. I love it. So, again, take it or leave it. That's just my thought. Yeah, so I started thinking about the breath today uh, when I was meditating this morning, and what blew me away, you know, I'm a biologist. I'm a, I'm a space explorer. So I started thinking 
like about the breath, is oxygen. It's rocket fuel. Mm-hmm. It's literally rocket fuel. That's what I fuel. That's what we fuel the rocket with is liquid oxygen. It's an oxidizer. It's what burns. And it's what burns the fuel, the food that we eat to make energy. And so I was just like, whoa, I'm like breathing rocket fuel. I mean, it just totally shifted. I'm like, oh, the breath. I thought all the breath was so pedantic. Oh, the breath. This is powers life. This is cool. Well, it's, you know, I mean, you're adding a totally fascinating intellectual overlay, but you can actually strip away the concepts and just use the breath as a, a way to train focus. So it's like you're just giving the monkey in your mind something to do. It will then get distracted a million times, but over and over you bring the gentle, you gently bring the monkey back. And over time, that kind of just has the net effect in my experience of lowering the level of useless chatter, which of course is the tuning of the antenna. Because mm-hmm. when the useless chatter level comes down, you're receptive to more ideas, many of them creative, or in my case, many of them ridiculously dumb. But nonetheless, they're new and different ideas than the habitual storylines you've been running since sentience anyway that's my pitch that's cool uh i want to talk about space though well no 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 before you talk about space has this practice made any difference for you as a parent is like well i don't know like uh what's your metric of is it working and is it rising to that that's a great question um i yes i think that between uh, sleeping eight hours a night which is i as when i became a mom i'm like oh god i actually need that now yeah you do Okay. Um, Between making sure, like, I'm seeing too that I'm getting sleep, that I need to do this job, um, and going to bed enough, then get up early enough to do the meditation. um, Yes, I see a marked difference in just being able to just be calm and to connect and to come up with a creative response to the kids doing whatever the kids are doing instead of like thrown, you know, monkey response. Yeah, we all have it. Uh, and sometimes, some days, you know, you don't get enough sleep, you don't get your practice in, whatever the external circumstances are d- tough or difficult or whatever, and sometimes you don't parent the way you want to parent, at least in my experience. Um, so what, what is your t- – tell us about what your job is. What, what, what the the You, you talked about, um, you know, all the things going on in your life being parenting and also work. What is the work? So I um, do our leadership training and development at Virgin Galactic for our staff. Um, what is, tell us about Virgin Galactic. So Virgin Galactic is Richard Branson's spaceship company. So we're building a suborbital space vehicle that will take um, people who buy tickets on a suborbital space trip where you get to go out um, up to the curvature of the Earth, um, the blackness of space, float around weightless, and look back at our home world. And is this like anywhere close to happening? Yeah, I think we'll. The, my goal is that uh, our we're in our test flight program right now with Spaceship Unity, and that that she gets to the space this year, and hopefully we get Richard. Hopefully we get Richard Branson to space this year or next year, and uh, and start flying customers. How much will it cost? It's two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Oh, so so anybody can do it. Any yeah, well. Yeah, it's a little. It's you know, it's like VCRs. You know, they start out really expensive, and now you can get one for twenty five dollars. I think nobody has a VCR. Exactly, <laughs> technology. <laughs> They're giving them away. Coming on. So it comes down. So I, I, that I, that makes sense to me. I mean, I would love to do that. That sounds incredible. Yeah. And you're gonna go. Yes. So we bought our tickets back in two thousand five. You actually bought tickets. Yeah. They're only two hundred thousand back then. No dis. No employee discount. Well, that was before uh, we were starting to work with the company. And uh, who's we? Oh, sorry. So my husband, George Whitesides, is the CEO of Virgin Galactic. So we bought the tickets in 2005. Um, he started to work with them as a consultant because we both work in the space industry. Um, and they, they knew trains and planes but didn't, uh, you know, have that expertise, you know, in space flight. And so um, they started working with him. And then when they wanted to increase, you know, step up operations in the U.S., they said, why don't you come be our CEO? So he's the running the show over there now. He's the CEO and you do leadership training, is that mm-hmm. what you said? So what does that entail? Um, we have a spring semester and a fall semester and we have, um, it's all voluntary. I, you know, we gotta, you got to choose to be there, you know, be part of it and take on your life. And 
Um, they do. We do like two lunches a month. I try to make it so the managers can't complain. And we do it over four months. And, uh, we, you know, we work on mindfulness. They have to take on a daily practice. But it can be whatever it is. Go for a walk, meditate, read, um, you know, work on their motorcycle, uh, study French. You know, they, they come up with whatever they want. But it's that idea of that mindfulness, like choosing having your life be, you know, of your design. We do. We work on listening. Um, we watch uh, clips from Star Wars movies and let Yoda, you know, use some of his wisdom. To Are you a Star, a Star Wars geek? Yeah. You, this is your yeah. second Star Wars. Oh uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm out. Totally a Star Wars geek. No, I mean, I love Star Wars. So you're in you're in a safe place. Uh, what did you think of the Han Solo movie? I haven't seen the you Han haven't Solo seen movie it? yet. I really liked it. I, I have to say that because I work for Disney, but I actually really <laughs> did like it. No, my husband took the kids. Uh, that weekend it came out, I just have, didn't get to go with him. I'm going to catch up soon. Uh, and he said he, he really liked it. He said, he, yeah. So I, he wants to go see it again with me, so I'm, I'm excited. Uh, so you play uh, um, Star Wars clips, uh, which I imagine would go over well with the folks. Do who or are, do not, work. there is no try. Do or do not, there is no try. That's a Yoda. Um, uh, how many people work for Virgin Galactic? About 800. Oh, so it's a, this is a huge company. Yeah. Well, huge. Pretty big. It's bigger than ABC for sure. The I don't know maybe, maybe maybe I don't I actually don't know what our head count is so it must be a pretty exciting gig to oh work yeah there. oh I love it I mean I'm a pagan mud this is what I've always wanted to do is work in human spaceflight and be able to use like the powerful experience of seeing the Earth from space to help the world feel more connected and and united and and mindful so I'm doing exactly I'm exactly where I want to be so. Say more about that. Why? I understand the the fascination with space, and I want to get into a little bit more about why, whence that fascination for you. But the 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 connectivity piece of it. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I, I've always felt that space is something that has the power to bring the world together, and it was really important to me. I mean, I grew up during the Cold War, and there was always this this rift and this divide. And uh, I remember watching the movie Two Thousand Ten, and um, the sequel to 2001. And so now they're, they want to go back out to Jupiter to find out what happened to Hal. Why did this, why did this mission go awry? And the only way to get there is to hitch a ride on the Russian vehicle. They're the only ones who are ready to launch. And so we're sort of forced in the situation where the U.S. and the, at the time Soviet Union have to do a joint mission to Jupiter. And this is like 1984, this movie came out, 83. I'm just like watching, you know, in, when it comes to TV or whatever. And... Um, it made a big impression on me because they get out to Jupiter, tensions flare up on Earth. They radio to the ship and they say, hey, we're about to go to war on Earth with the Soviets. You guys have to go to the other side of the ship, close the door and stop talking to each other. And they have this meeting on the bridge with the two commanders, the Soviet woman commander and the American commander. And and they're, based, they're good friends. They've been traveling for months together in space and working as a team. And they're like, it doesn't make any sense to us. Like just because the politicians are behaving like jerks, it doesn't mean that we have to too. And they keep working together to solve, you know, to do what they're doing. And what, how do you? Th- is it scalable to get enough people up into space to get this view to provoke the sense of unity that you're yearning for? I mean, can we get enough people up to space to to have this have a meaningful impact? I think so. We've had about 550 people go to space so far between all the the governments that have sent astronauts, cosmonauts, taikonauts. Um And we've, at Virgin Galactic, we've already sold, you know, over 700 tickets to fly on our spaceship. So we'll be doubling the number of people who have gone. And we'll be expanding it out from just government astronauts to people from 58 different countries, you know, all different walks of life, all different languages. And they'll be able to come home to their communities and share this experience firsthand. Um, and I think that's, you know, you only need to, you know, s- certain percentage of the population to hit like a tipping point. And just even just to spread that idea through movies and podcasts and films and and get it out there. And that's that's my commitment is that we use this frontier to expand our mind and help us m- grow as a species and become who we've always wanted to be. How confident are you that will work? Because one experience of that kind of literal transcending – Will it have an abiding effect on an individual? Uh, I mean, how confident are you that 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 would happen? Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not. It's not a silver bullet. You know, I worked in the astronaut office. I know that you know they're not all perfect. You know, they're like they come back from Earth. They're like, wow, I'm going to be nice to my wife, and you know, 
Buzz Aldrin came back from the moon, you know, he was he had to deal with his alcoholism and for years and depression. And so it's not a silver bullet, but it's it's an opportunity. And I want to make sure we are positioned to take as much advantage of that opportunity as we can and to do as much good with it as we can. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way. After This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Is it still a struggle to get that good night's sleep? Then maybe it's time to try the Purple Mattress. It's made out of a new material that keeps it firm and soft so it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. Try it now with a 100-night risk-free trial along with free shipping and returns. And if you order one, you'll get a free purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. Just text HAPPIER to 474747. The only way to get this free pillow is to text HAPPIER to 474747. Message and data rates may apply. Aside from the... the the stuff we've just been talking about around um, human connectivity. Why have you always been interested in space? Well, you know, like I remember started when I was, you know, five or six. So maybe it's part of that childhood fascination. Um, you know, the frontier and, um, you know, what's possible in exploration. You know, there's always the, in every society, there's the explorers. People want to push the boundaries. Um, and that's, useful role. But I think what really crystallized it was when I got to be about 12, you know, and it was the 80s, and we had acid rain and save the whales and the ozone hole, and there was all these problems on my planet, and I was so worried about it. And, you know, as a 12-year-old, I was like, how, you know, this bird heavy, like, what am I going to do? My, how am I going to help my world? And I didn't know where to start. You know, which of these problems should I work on? And I made a decision that I wanted to work on space because I felt like if we go to space, um, we could sort of bootstrap our way up and, and solve all our problems at once. We can learn how to live sustainably, you know, recycle all our air and all our water because you have to in space. You don't have a choice. You can't can't just use things and throw them out. You have to figure out how to keep things closed loop the way nature does. Nature doesn't throw anything away. <laughs> so we need to learn to live like that. And so I thought if we could learn to do that in space, then maybe that could help teach our world how to live in a way that works. Have you been to space yet? I haven't. But I'm. But I could fly as soon as next year. So I'm super excited. And nervous at all? Absolutely. I mean, that's normal. I mean, you're doing something for the first time. You're doing something really risky. You're going three times the speed of sound. You're going really high. Um, but I feel fortunate because I had the opportunity – um, to do um, an IMAX shoot with James Cameron. And we were doing, we had these the submersibles he dived Titanic with. Um, we were diving to the bottom of the ocean, like to simulate a space mission, or to, to, to explore frontiers. And um, 
to me, the ocean is much scarier than space. Like I find the ocean is terrifying. Like that's it's like heavy and like mm-hmm. you drown. It's like it scares me. And so, um, and and being out in the middle of the ocean, like three days from land, like it's, it's a big planet we're on. And I'd never been out of sight of land before. So being at sea for a month out of sight of land was powerful. And, and to be out of range of rescue, like no helicopters can get to us in the middle of the ocean. Um, when we go down to the bottom. What three, was this? Um, this is a IMAX movie called Aliens of the Deep that I was in. And When did you shoot it? And we shoot, we shoot it in 2003. Wow. And it came out in 2005. And so How did you I, end up in the in, on the shoot? I was an astrobiologist at Caltech at the time at JPL, NASA's JPL in Los Angeles. Jet Propulsion Lab. It's Jet Propulsion Lab. I Thank you. I know that. That's good. Um, don't expect Sorry for the acronym. I, I usually don't do that. Um, and James Cameron came to JPL looking for astrobiologists because he wanted to bring together ocean Oceanographers and astrobiologists to take them out on a, a field expedition. And astrobiologists don't usually get to do field missions. Like no, you know, nobody's been to Mars yet. Nobody's been to Europa yet. Um, and so he's like wanted to give us the opportunity to do like this sort of extreme field work and learn from the oceanographers about life in extreme environments and and film it and the hydrothermal vents that are at the bottom that could be an analog to life forms that could be living on oceans like ocean worlds like Europa. Um. And so we were we were doing this shoot, and we were going down to titanic depths. I mean, this is like two miles underwater, um, so it's quite deep. And there, and there's no other. This is the deepest diving submersibles in the world. So if something were to happen to us at the bottom, there's no one to come get you. Is it claustrophobic? I I wouldn't have that issue. I have claustrophobia. Um, it's about three three seats wide, three people in the submersible Titanic, two meter sphere. Um, oh, I would freak out. <laughs> I, I freaked out about the thought that I, this is, I'm, you know, we're off grid. Like Americans aren't used to that. We have nine one one. We're always someone's always can help us. And so to take to take to make a choice to be like I'm going to get in this submersible tomorrow morning, and I'm going to go to the bottom of the ocean was that was scary. And it was it was interesting to have it not just be a theoretical. Yeah, I'd go to Mars, but like no, you're actually going to do this tomorrow morning. And so I, I've had the, the the luxury, the privilege of getting to already face that decision point and with something that I considered scarier than going to space in a way because you know, I, I say that, you know, it's like a race car driver or a mountain climber. Like if I die going to space or in space, like I, I'm doing what I love, like what I'm here to do. Like that's okay. But, you know, if you die, you know, in a car accident, you know, or it's like that's that would be a tragedy for me because <laughs> I wouldn't mm-hmm. have gotten to do what I came here to do. But what was it like when you were down there? It's incredible. It's completely black. Um, but luckily, we have our Hollywood light package, which you take, you, you turn off while you're descending to save power, and you just turn them on when you get to the bottom. So on descent, you know, you there's like um, these um, bioluminescent bacteria that glow in the ocean, and so if you let your eyes adjust to the dark around the portal, um, you can see they're like shooting stars going by the window of the submersible as you're descending, except that they're blue, uh, green, and red. So uh, that was really cool. And so there's a portal you're looking at. It's not like it's a glass encased thing. I did both. Um, for a thousand meters, we had a fully like um, fishbowl submersible, acrylic submersible, um, and that was really cool. Although you're in the fishbowl, but remember it's completely black outside, so it doesn't really matter because it's only where you shine the light that you're going to even be able to see anything once you get down past 200 feet. Um, so yeah, but for the deep dives, we had the the titanium holes. And so then you just have this little portal. The pilot's got about a seven inch window and we have like about a five inch window. There's three windows. So everyone gets their own window, <laughs> window seat. Um, yeah. And there's incredible creatures down there. There's these comb jellies that are like neon blinking lights. And I'm like, that's crazy. There's alien animals with neon blinking lights. Uh, I thought I was crazy, but then I read about it in a science magazine. I was like, okay, those are real. <laughs> um, and like a creature with like a mouth within a mouth of the mouth. You see all these things. You're like, oh, James Cameron just got all these ideas for these aliens from the deep <laughs> ocean. And like everything you you go and see uh, Avatar, and he's got like the bioluminescent, you know, jungle on Pandora, and like the the plants that like pull into their sheath when you touch them. It's like exactly what the the worms do. The six foot worms, the bottom of the Pacific. Whoa, six yeah. foot. Yeah, I saw pictures in the book of the worms. Like, yeah, these are tube worms. They're at the bottom of the ocean. Oh, we're gonna go visit the tube worms. Yeah. Tube worms. No. Tube worms. Six foot tall tube worms that are like fire hose thick. You're like, okay, that's not a worm I wanted to find. And they can survive under that much 
pressure. Yeah, they can. And if you touch them with the, the robotic arm, they have like a red feathery plume that is what's sort of filter feeding. And if you touch it, it's so, it'll like pull into its sheath, just like the Pandoran jungle plants do. So it's, it's cool. That's really cool. It's an amazing They're Exotic, experience. crazy. And the, 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 the hydrothermal vents themselves are spewing out black smoke and 700 degrees. And you're like, don't get too close. Do you think in our lifetime we'll be able to pay to go further than suborbital, like oh, the yeah. moon? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, SpaceX is on the verge, and, and, and Blue Origin is not far behind. Are they, those are your two – would you say those are Virgin's two main competitors? Well, they're, they're, they're working on a different product right now. So, like, we're – you know, we're like Southwest, you know, you know, doing – you know, here to San Francisco, you know, here to here – to, Boston here to Houston, um, and they're doing you know the long haul flights you know here to Sydney here to Tokyo. Um, the bigger the bigger rockets that are doing orbital flights can you know take you to a, a stay space station or let you stay for a couple weeks. That's um, what SpaceX. That's is what SpaceX on. and Blue Origin are working towards. Blue is that uh, Blue Origin that's the Jeff Amazon Bezos, guess? Yeah, yeah. Amazon. So there's Seattle with Amazon and and uh, SpaceX is Los Angeles with Elon Musk and Tesla. Yeah, and, and you guys are NoCal, Northern California. We're in Southern California also. Southern we're, California. In the, we're in the Mojave Desert. You are? Okay. Yeah. Oh, that, right. I read that you live in the desert. Um, so you think we'll be able to go to like a space station? Yeah. Uh, that's my goal. I want to have an orbital retreat center. Wouldn't that be so cool? Go and <laughs> meditate and... In, uh, while looking down at the earth. That would be amazing. I mean, the what about something on the moon? Said, take, uh, take the politicians. You know, what if you could do a summit, you know, on orbit? That's a really interesting idea. What about the moon? Yeah, absolutely. The moon is – we're coming up on the uh, 50th anniversary of Apollo 8 where they took that first picture of the earth from the moon, which was so beautiful on Christmas Eve. So Earthrise. Earthrise. So Christmas Eve, uh, you know, this year will be the 50th anniversary of that photo. It's, we're looking forward to that. And then the Apollo 11, the moon landing, was July 20th, 69. So next summer will be the 50th. Um, and so there's a lot of attention on the moon. The Chinese – Already have missions launching. Um, some private companies in the U.S. are launching missions. Uh, there's going to be a lot of attention on the moon. To do what? What are they? What are the missions? Um, the Chinese put up a relay satellite just to start putting in your comm, so you know you need your relay satellite. So when you're on the far side of the moon, you can still talk back to Earth. Uh-huh. Um, things like that, and then they'll they'll be doing a landing. I think people want to land a plant on the moon. It's like sort of symbolic, but beautiful. Um, bring some life. Bring the moon to life. Um, people want to go to the poles. Um, at the pole of the moon, um, there are permanently shadowed craters where they think there's a lot of water ice um, and where you also will get more sunlight. So on the, on the moon, you have 14 days of darkness and 14 days of light because of the lunar cycle. And then so if you but if you go to the, so it's tough when you if you don't bring a nuclear power source, you know, you can't use solar power. You can't bring enough gasoline um, or hydrazine or whatever you want to use. So, you you know, if you want to have a sustainable board, it's good to go to the South Pole because then you can have your solar panels up and you have 24 hours of sunlight all, all the time. The sun's always shining at the South Pole. So um, the peaks of eternal light. So that's, a, you know, people really want arches in going there. Do you think they're going to, like, set up hotels on, on the, the moon? Is that what we're heading toward? Yeah. And why has it taken 50 years to get to this point? That's a great question. Um, it's expensive. That's one reason. Um, priorities. I mean, the reason we stopped the Apollo program in 72 was after we landed 12 humans on the moon um, was Nixon was like, hey, I got Vietnam to fund. This is too expensive. I'm going to cut it. And so we stopped. We just stopped. And then we got into the Cold War, which was also pretty expensive. Yeah. Spendy. Uh, and then 9-11, et cetera, et cetera. But then George W. Bush's closing shot was, uh, let's go to Mars. Yeah. Yeah, and then but the but the way that they were doing it was big government programs, mm-hmm. so they were really expensive. It was like, you know, billions of dollars of, for maybe two missions a year, um, and and you know, the accountability office was like, this the numbers, this is looking like it's going to get pretty unsustainable. It's expensive, but luckily, what's exciting is you know the same way Tesla um, brought in the electric cars, which sort of just changed the game, like made electric cars cool. Like, oh, I got to have a Model S. This it's cool. Um, and now everyone, you know, a lot of manufacturers are trying to catch up and make electric cars. You know, SpaceX has also game-changed spaceflight by making the rockets reusable. So now if you watched the 
Falcon Heavy launch that they just did. It was miraculous. It was extraordinary. I mean, they've already been reusing their Falcon 9. So the, the rocket will take off, and instead of the boosters just dropping in the ocean like they've done for 50 years, they their booster came back and landed on the landing pad. So you don't think like Branson and Bezos, they look at, you know, a success that um, SpaceX might have, and you don't think they're, that burns for them? Or, or, do you, or do you think everybody's kind of rooting for each other because you're all in different necks of the woods? It, this is a great way, reason to bring mindfulness to the space community because we do all share that same dream and that same passion. And what if we could all root for each other and we could all work together and collaborate? I mean, it sounds like you're rooting for SpaceX. Completely. I mean, the, the, his dream is, you know, is our dream. But how would that go over among your 800 colleagues? I think a lot of them get it too. They and they see see the value. You know, we want we want them to do well. We want orbital flights to be available. We want point to point. We want to build point to point ourselves. Um, and, you know, really? So that's within the business plan. You're starting with suborbital and you, you go from there. Yeah. I mean, you know, suborbital, you know, you got to be thinking about what, what your next, where are you going next? And that's what I think is exciting is, you know, can we get anywhere on the planet in less than an hour? Can we help bring the world together like physically too? Not how, just how would that happen? Because you go suborbital and it yeah, just so the, much the faster? Yeah. So the space shuttle, when you're going, so you have to go Mach 25 to orbit the earth. That's just physics. If you're going less than 25 times the speed of sound, you're going to back to Earth. So you have to outrun gravity. So you're going 25 times the sound. So that's how fast the shuttle goes or went. And um, it can go around the Earth in 90 minutes. That's how fast the space station or the shuttle or uh, things in low Earth orbit orbit. And so, you know, you launch, you know, and that's all the way around. So if you only need to go halfway, you can get anywhere in the world in about an hour. So I could go to Sydney mm-hmm. or Hong Kong in an hour. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting, because, but because air travel, which would have been considered inutterably miraculous in 1850, yeah. has not made the world measurably more peaceful, has it? it Maybe it has. In some know. ways, it has. I mean, like now, you know, you have a lot more intercultural mixing, so you have a lot of intercultural marriage. Can okay, now I'm somebody from South Africa is now marrying somebody from Canada, and like they can fly back and forth, and they could visit the family and go back for Christmas. Um, and so because of that, you you do see more cultural exchange and more more travel, more people visit and more business trips. And so you're like, no, no, I have a friend in India. And like you – I think it's helpful with understanding. Now the airplane's also been used as a weapon. That's right. So, I mean, that's one of the things I'm really mindful of is like any powerful new technology, whether it's artificial intelligence or, um, you know, spaceships, you know, can that power can be used to, you know, create or destroy. But overall, it seems to me that what, what I'm hearing from you is that you hear a near future, a near to midterm future where we're, you know, if you want to pay, may not be, even be that much in, in a couple in a decade or two to go suborbital, you can do that, um, which is what would, would be like an afternoon thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then even we're having retreats on the on uh, floating space stations and or orbiting space stations and go to the moon. And mm-hmm. this all sounds based on what you're saying, to be not that far away. Right. Possibly our lifetime, yours that's, and mine. Yeah, that's my intention. That's what a lot of us are working towards. And what's beyond that? People want to go to Mars. I mean, Musk is crystal clear that their goal is Mars. And, you know, um, Bezos wants to get a million people living and working in space. Where and does he see the being? He is usually a cis, we call it cis-lunar, so anywhere around the moon. So, like, there's Lagrange points. There's some gravitationally stable points, you know, on either side of the moon and between us and the moon where you could put a thing and it'll stay there. What does he want to do there? Um, you'd build like a uh, a settlement, a city, uh-huh. where you grow your own food and recycle all your air and water uh-huh. and you can do manufacturing or, or you can mine asteroids. Mine astronauts. Uh, okay. Yeah. And th- so th- uh, get titanium or. And what what is the end? What is the vision then for your company? Um, that's, yeah, so we're definitely interested in point-to-point transportation and, and... What would the other point be? Oh, like, so New York, oh, New York, oh, Sydney. Oh, I see, point-to-point point point, on point Earth. point on Earth. New York, Sydney. Gotcha. You know, this, the hour around mm-hmm. the Earth. And then, um, you know, uh, sorry, Brant, Richard Branson's talked about things like, you know, hotels on orbit. And, um, and I think he would love to go to the moon if he could, so... Um, it's really, it's so interesting. I mean, and just getting back to this issue of... Will a global and 
a truly global perspective and or maybe even a truly galactic perspective create more peaceable humans. I just I, I, I remember I was moderating a panel once with and I'd be interested to hear your answer to this question, your personal answer to this question. I was moderating a panel with a bunch of, I think, astrophysicists uh, mm-hmm. and we we're talking about space. And I at some point I asked, um, you know, thinking about space all the time, does that big blast of perspective, you know, the kind of perspective that I get when I see the moon sometimes or when I'm just lying on my back with our sun looking up at the sky, does that, you know, filter its way into your life in a way that makes you calmer or easier to live with? And all three of them said no. Oh, oh it's devastating. But not true for you. Oh, no, no. To me, it's a very spiritual experience, and and I think like you can walk around the Earth knowing, you have some sort of background hum of understanding that like this this these little dramas that I'm witnessing are playing out within this vast space, which then allows it all to seem to be seen with some perspective. Totally. My husband likes to say, "From low Earth orbit, all your problems look small." I like that. Just get enough perspective. And and like from enough distance, we all become one. It's like, what? You're from Earth too? Awesome. That's my home planet. Love it. <laughs> You're connected. You feel kinship. You know, we're all in this together. Right. But stuck with a local perspective, that kind of tribalism, the, the kind of tribalism yeah. that you're worried about sets in. Yeah. And scarcity thinking. Instead of like, wow, what an extraordinary universe we are. Well, that's the such the interesting thing about these three companies that we keep talking about, and plus whatever the Chinese are doing and anybody else, is that it really does blow a huge, probably ineradicable hole in scarcity thinking in some ways. Although maybe not ineradicable because, as we see in Star Wars, you'll find something else to fight about. I know. It's, it's heartbreaking to me, like this. The idea of like Mars declaring war on Earth. It's like, oh, that's not what I'm doing this for. Or even us fighting over, you know, who got the mining rights to which asteroid. Yes. yes. And that's why – so that's why I teach mindfulness and leadership training and, and team development at the company because I believe that like almost like the culture – the people who are building the spaceships are going to be setting the culture of what we're taking with us. And we have to start holding ourselves to a higher bar. So interesting because it's like, it's like a do-over. Mm-hmm. We have a blank slate up there. And what do we want to bring? Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, we call it the new right stuff, like adding vulnerability and authenticity. On, so in the 50s, the right stuff was like uh, just grin and bear it. And Great movie. Everybody tough. should see the right yeah. stuff. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, how, how stoic can you be? How much can you endure? And, and it's like the lone wolf, too. Like, I don't need any help. I got this. And so building on that tradition that we come from and that, and that achievements and, like, adding in a new layer on top of that of authenticity, vulnerability, full self-expression, being who you are. Being, we call it bringing your whole self to work and virgin. Um, I call the new right stuff. It's like what we're going to need to – what we need to be successful in the next phase of space. Well, we should call the, the, this podcast episode the new right stuff. I like that. Um, the and, and I really like it because it, it means more now having spoken to you than it would have meant if you talked to me about it at the beginning. I would have thought of it as initially as kind of an HR slogan, not in a bad way, but more like, you know, we, we, uh, really focused on the culture of your single corporation, but actually what you are talking about is the culture of the future of humanity. Yes. That's the seed that is clear to me that you're trying to plant. Yep. Good luck. <laughs> hey, I got nothing else to do with my time on it. <laughs> Might as well do something fun. I think it's, uh, it's a worthy goal. It's a worthy mission. Um, if people want to learn more about you, how can they do so? I So I built a website, thenewrightstuff.com or lorettawhitesides.com. Um and you can read more about me there or um, get the book, new, my, the textbook we use for our training, The New Right Stuff. Um, yeah, or follow me on Twitter at Loretta Hidalgo. It's my maiden name, H-I-D-A-L-G-O. Um, and I have, I've done some TEDx talks too, which are kind of fun if oh, you want to cool. hear more about 
space and and my take on it and how I got interested in how I use it to help humanity. Do we uh, search under your full name or just yeah TEDx logo? Loretta Whitesides? Pull up the there's a TEDx NASA, TEDx Pasadena Women, and TEDx Manhattan Beach. They're, they're a lot of fun. You made me think. I appreciate it. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. She did make me think. Loretta Hidalgo Whitesides, really appreciate it. Time for your voicemails. Here's number one. Hey, Dan. It's Megan calling all the way from Barrie, Ontario, Canada. My question for you is what role do you think movement plays uh, in combination with meditation? Uh, I'm currently researching a program that includes yoga and mindfulness to help alleviate symptoms of PTSD. And I'm just curious your take on the added element of movement in conjunction with sitting meditation. If you think there's an added benefit or an increased effect, um, sort of that mind-body connection, if you will, and would love to hear your thoughts. So thanks so much, and all the best. Lots of love from Canada. Bye. Thank you. Lots of love right back at you. I have a bunch of thoughts. I, this is by no means uh, going to be a comprehensive sort of exegesis on the on the um, benefit of movement uh, in meditation, but just a few thoughts that are coming to mind. I don't do a ton of yoga. I've done a little bit of yoga. Um, I have a bit of a complex relationship with yoga, but I, I'm all for it. And in particular, I, I find it really useful to stretch before I'm going to sit for extended period of time because I am so fidgety and restless and my body gets sore and cranky easily as I get older. So I, I think that's just one thing to say that I think it can be really helpful. I also think, and I was talking to Joseph Goldstein, my teacher, about this recently, that walking meditation – especially for people who are super restless and really have trouble with this sitting with your eyes closed thing, walking meditation, by which I'm, I'm, I'm referring to formal walking meditation where you, you know, stake out a, you know, a patch of ground, maybe five yards, uh, ten yards, and you just kind of pace back and forth very slowly, paying exquisite attention to the movement of your body. Often you can use little notes like lift – move place, you know, lifting your foot, moving your foot, placing it. That kind of meditation is just just really useful on its own, especially for people who are, who are restless. But it also helps, and here I'm quoting Joseph, to take your mindfulness out into the world. And so, you know, you, you then have this kind of muscle memory that, uh, and mental slash muscle memory so that when you're walking around uh, and tempted to check your phone in between meetings while moving, which will give you ample opportunities to walk into other people or a poll, um, that maybe actually you can use those moments to just kind of tune into whatever's going on right now, which can be a nice dose of mental hygiene in the middle of a day uh, where you're just constantly toppling forward all the time. So those are two things that come to mind. I suspect, without evidence, that adding yoga in for folks with PTSD who may have trouble sitting with their eyes closed, um, I suspect that that's a really smart move, but I'd be very interested to see the data. So I, I think you're on to something. I wish I had something more comprehensive to say, except that you know, I, for everybody who's listening to this, I think it makes sense if you've got a seated meditation practice or a daily-ish meditation practice to mix in some walking meditation because it's, as I said, good on its own and also really good because you are taking it out into the world. Uh, it helps you take it out into the world. One more thing to say about that is a lot of people fall asleep when they're meditating. It's a very common problem. It happens to me. If you are super tired but want to get in a few minutes of meditation right before bed or right first thing in the morning or in between meetings at work and you're worried that all you're going to do is you know find yourself completely collapsed in the middle of the meditation, which happens to me all the time, just doing a couple minutes of walking meditation can, can make a huge difference right there. And we have guided walking meditations on uh, the 10% Happier app. So thank you, Megan. Uh, on to the next voicemail. Hey, Dan. This is Dan. Um, want to thank you first of all, the podcast, the books, um, which brings me to my question, uh, kind of a two-parter first, you know, I, when I start to meditate, I'll have these issues that 
I'm going to try to deal with or I'm thinking through or come up within me. And um, I sometimes don't know which of the, the methods to use. I'll start out like, well, welcome to the party, or should this be a rain meditation, or should I do some something else? Or, you know, so I kind of feel like sometimes I spin my wheels and don't really know and, and jump from methodology to methodology or, or, or meditation to meditation that I've listened to and learned. I've only been meditating for about five months. So that's one thing. And I guess that leads me to my second question is, if I'm relying too much on guided meditation, at what point in the practice do you start self-guided meditation where you're not listening to or not coached or uh, you just are working through this uh, on your own? On your own. I, I don't think I'm there yet, but I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on that. And then the first part of, like, you know, if you go through that too, or you feel like, well, let me try loving kindness, this, no, maybe not, let me try, you know, rain or something else. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And thank you again for everything that you, that you do. Five months into meditation, that's great. Um, and so I guess what I, I would, the first thing I would say is you're only five months in. I, I'm not saying this like I'm 50 years in, um, 10 years in, not even. But only five months in, which is a, a real achievement, it's completely natural that you're going to have, you know, go through all sorts of awkward stages of the practice. So I wouldn't get too tangled up in that. Um, but on the specific issues you're raising, I think they're excellent questions, ones that I've wrestled with personally. So let's start with the first one. So you're in meditation, something comes up that's difficult, and you've been taught a bunch of techniques for dealing with difficult emotions and you're and then you're like oh well which tool do i use here do i use loving kindness do i use rain i'll explain what rain is in a second do i use welcome to the party i'll explain that as well what do i do uh and then you're then you're stuck in a classic buddhist hindrance of doubt not doubt in the positive sense but doubt in the negative sense where you're just stuck in the quicksand of unconstructive self-questioning, which often leads to even less constructive self-laceration. First thing to know is this is totally common, at least in my experience, happens all the time, still happens to me a little bit of this. Let me just for the view, for the listeners, I said almost said viewers, I'm so used to being on TV. For the listeners, let me just explain what some of these tools are that you're talking about and then try to offer up a workable solution beyond just don't worry about it too much. One, uh, uh, you mentioned uh, loving kindness. Loving kindness, we've talked about this a bunch on the podcast. It's this practice where you send, um, you visualize uh, beings, including yourself, and repeat phrases of friendliness like, may you be happy, may you be healthy, et cetera, et cetera. My view on that is it's an incredible practice. In fact, most of my practice right now is loving kindness in uh, in the ancient Indian language of Pali. It's called metta practice, M-E-T-T-A. That is my uh, primary practice right now as I'm working on a book about kindness. I would say that in my experience, I usually I don't usually revert to loving kindness in the middle of, an, of a straight-up mindfulness sit where I'm just feeling the breath coming in and going out. I, don't, I wouldn't usually just throw that in the middle of a sit. I either pick one and do one or the other at the beginning. So in terms of tools to go to if something's come up, I wouldn't rule out metta, but it doesn't come to mind as the thing that I would revert to in the middle of a a straight-up vipassana mindfulness sit. The other techniques you mentioned are RAIN and welcome to the party. So RAIN is – it's an acronym, recognize. It's the first step when something comes up that stuff. You just recognize, say, oh, yeah, this is anger. Allow. Don't fight it. Just allow that this thing is here. Investigate. So how is it showing up in your body? Uh, What kind of thoughts is the emotion spinning off? What is anger really like? And then end, non-identification. You can see that this is the mental state of anger, but is there any you in there? No, it's it's an impersonal, and this is fascinating, and this is going to sound a little grandiose, but liberating to see this isn't your anger. This is just anger. And you don't need to get wrapped up in identifying with it and tripling, doubling and tripling down on it because it is you're so caught up 
in the story. You can just see, oh, yeah, this this is anger. That acronym I find to be incredibly useful. And so I would recommend doing that. Of course, your question is, what do I do when I know a bunch of techniques for dealing with difficult things? So the other one you mentioned was, welcome to the party. This is a technique developed by my, by my friend and co-author, uh, Jeff Warren, with whom I wrote a book called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. And he talks about the fact that a lot of us sort of push away and this is this is a, a component of rain. We push away the hard stuff that comes up for us, and that can uh, the struggle can 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 mire us even more deeply into the briar patch of that particular emotion if we're struggling with it. And so, if we just actually salute it uh, and say, "Hey, welcome to the party," it often dissipates. And so, in some ways, actually, welcome to the party is a combination of meta and rain. So I would say for you, if you're sitting in meditation, something difficult comes up, sadness or anger or restlessness, I think it's completely natural to have a moment of, okay, so which tool am I using here? I I would go through – I would pick one and just spend a period of time where every time something difficult comes up, you're just going to use one of these. Try that. Try that for a little while. Um, And if you're finding that actually, no, 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 I really do need to – be a little bit more bespoke depending on the on the on whatever the mental state that's come to visit then you can switch back and forth among these various techniques but don't allow yourself to get too stuck in the self laceration self flagellation around being confused about which technique you're going to choose so give yourself a break you're 5 months in this practice is going to feel awkward as a beginner, and it still can feel awkward for me as uh, somebody who's probably at the beginning of the intermediate stage. So um, I hope w- the foregoing made some sense. Your second question was about guided versus unguided meditations. I'm a big fan of guided meditations, but you have to take what I say with a grain of salt because I'm the co-founder of a meditation app that specializes in guided meditations. But I, I, I do think, uh, and what I do in my own practice is – do both. And so I think you can start to experiment five months in with just sitting without guided meditations and doing it on your own. And sometimes you'll want guided and sometimes you won't. And I think that's a good mix. Guided meditation is not training wheels. It's not cheating. It's full-on meditation. Uh, and it's incredibly useful to have a, a really wise person in your ear guiding you through it. But there may be times when it's either impractical or suboptimal to do that. So you just do it on your own. I think five months in, you can handle it. Thank you very much for that, for for those excellent questions. Um, we really appreciate the questions. And as promised, we are going to be uh, recruiting some actual experts to come in and answer them, meditation teachers who we're going to uh, run these questions by, record their answers, and put them on the show. Uh, so that's coming up soon-ish, I think. Uh, we're, we're on it, I promise. I just don't, don't have a... Uh, a date certain from when we're going to do it. That does it for uh, 10% Happier this week. If you like us, uh, please, and I know this, we, we uh, I say this every week, but I really mean it. It's not, uh, it's, this is not uh, just a perfunctory thing here. If you take a minute to subscribe to the show or to rate us or to tell a friend about us, in other words, posting about us on social media, it makes a difference. It helps us in the rankings and makes us uh, a, a, a viable uh, project, um, something I can defend to the bosses, et cetera, et cetera. So do all of that, please. Also, if you want to suggest topics uh, or people you think we should have on as guests, hit me up on Twitter. A lot of people do this, and we, we actually do listen to this, and we go about the process. Now we're even getting more systematic about vetting our guests, so the, those Twitter suggestions are really helpful. And uh, I really want to thank the people who work incredibly hard to produce this podcast. Samuel Johns, Ryan Kessler, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who make this whole thing possible. We at ABC have a ton of other podcasts, and you can check them out on abcnewspodcasts.com. That does it for our show. We'll talk to you again next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
I'm Shimon Liai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.